0: I invite at this time our two through four-year-olds, those who will be working with them to be dismissed to toddler nursery and children's church. Those of you who will remain here in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter thirteen beginning in verse one for the choir director a psalm of David How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider an answer Me, O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for its truth. Father, we thank you for its challenge. When we thank you for its comfort. Father, today, as we consider these words from your servant, David. When we consider. The difficulties of life. We consider the greatness of your love. Father, may we become underwhelmed with life circumstances, and overwhelmed by your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, Jesus, the one who remembers us, David, every few psalms in this first book of psalms, seems to be repeating a cycle, a cycle of... This this circumstantial distancing, this relational distancing that we've talked about. And so this morning, the the question of what to do with a sorrow filled heart. A sorrow filled heart. We see in the first four verses, David is in a place of pain. David is in a place of difficulty. David is in a, a low place. And he asks a question that seems incomplete, but often in times of great pain and great sorrow, that's the way our questions are. He starts the psalm with, How long, O Lord? It's not really a complete question, it's not a complete thought, not a complete idea. But isn't that the way that it is sometimes in great pain? Can't really get the words to come out right. Can't really get the thoughts to form quite as correctly as they should. But you do know that you don't want the way things are to stay the way that they are. You'd like a time frame. How long for what? What is the thing you're asking about? How long has it been going on? None of these are addressed here. It's just how long, oh Lord. How long? How long will this pain, this tragedy, this circumstance, this suffering, etc., how long will it endure? Like good humans and particularly good 21st century Americans, uh, can I get an end date on my schedule? I'd like to pencil this in on my calendar of when this is going to be over so that I know how much longer I have to deal with this. I was asked, I won't name any names, but I was asked a few Sundays back when I preached a sermon from one of the chapters that was very similar to this. And I made the statement, I said, It's okay to feel this way. It's not okay to stay this way. Someone caught me after the service and asked this question. It's a profound question. How long is it okay to feel that way? Like at what point Do we go from it's okay to feel sorrowful, feel pain, feel the suffering, feel what seems to be circumstantial distance from God? And we know in faith we're supposed to step across that threshold and we're supposed to not stay that way. So what is the shelf life of feeling that way? When is it okay to feel that way? And when does it become sinful to feel that way? And of course, my answer as any great profound pastor and theologian should have been was, I don't know. I don't know. Because when David writes these psalms. These psalms are written in hindsight. Most of them are written once the sorrow Is over. Very few of these are being written while the pain is current and happening. He experiences the pain of Saul wanting to kill him. He experiences the pain of his own children wanting to kill him. He experiences the pain of civil war after he becomes king. He experiences the pain of his sin with Bathsheba. The death of her husband that he caused. The death of the child that resulted. He experiences these pains, but he does not write about them until after it's all done. And so if we were to look at David's life when he writes something like this. How long did his circumstances last? How long did he experience the pain? How long did the conflict endure? Days? Weeks? Months? Sometimes years. So I don't know. I don't know how long. David doesn't either. And that's why he's calling out to the Lord. How long? And then David asks. A very painful question. To God. Will you forget me. Forever. I don't know all of the kinds of things that everyone in the room has been through. But having done pastoral ministries for over two decades now. And having sat across the table from lots of different people. Who have gone through lots of different circumstances. And having been through a lot of different circumstances in my own life. I know that invariably. Most people who follow the Lord. Who live enough life. Are going to feel the way that David feels right here. Are you going to forget me forever? God, I don't feel like you're anywhere around right now. I know that you said you'd never leave me. I know that you said you'd never forsake me. I know that you said you would always be there, but it sure doesn't feel that way right now. How long is it going to be this way? How long are you going to hide your face from me? This relational and circumstantial distance that we've been talking about in some of the other psalms. And then David asked this very unusual question. Doesn't translate well. How long shall I take counsel in my soul? This phrase for take counsel is best translated stand quarreling? How long will I stand quarreling in my soul? How long will I fight with myself and have sorrow in my heart all day long? Sorrow, agony, grief. How long will I fight with myself and have grief in my heart all day long? My enemies, they rejoice over me. And then David makes a request of God. In verse 3, he says, Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. Give me spiritual clarity. That's the idea of enlighten my eyes. Give me spiritual clarity or I will sleep the sleep of death. This pain, this grief, this sorrow is so intense that it is killing me is what David's saying. Have you ever felt that way? I have. I felt that way. And in those dark nights of the soul as the old mystics and the old theologians used to call it where you're journeying through this pain and God feels very distant and the grief and the sorrow seems to be too much to bear and you just can't process what it is that you're going through and you begin to have a hard time processing how God can be love and yet you're experiencing what you're experiencing in that moment and it's overwhelming you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. It's even beginning to impact you physically. You're not sleeping well. He says, give me clarity. Give me insight. Enlighten my eyes. Help me understand what's going on. Or I'll sleep the sleep of death. This is killing me, God. It's killing me. What do you do with that? What do you do with a heart that is filled with that measure of sorrow? And David tells us, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, because it's not hard to help people understand or to convince people that this sort of sorrow is real and that this sort of experience happens and that sort of pain comes on us. It really doesn't take a long conversation with most people who've lived enough life to know what this kind of pain is like. What is difficult is to convince people of the truthfulness of verses five and six of Psalm 13. Friends, I'm going to make. What I feel is a very controversial and profound statement this morning. One that I have a hard time agreeing with myself, even though I'm going to make it. Joy is a matter of attention, not situation. Joy, delight, fullness of life in the Lord, however you want to call that, the blessed life, is a matter of attention, not situation. The Apostle Paul was thrown into a prison where he certainly thought he may just rot. And he began singing praises to God. His situation did not warrant this. (laughs) You know, when all those years ago, John Piper stood up in front of his church when he had got cancer and he said, I genuinely want to thank God for my cancer. That's not normal. Getting thrown into prison and chained to a wall like Paul was in Rome and then singing praises at midnight to God in the middle of that circumstance. That is not normal. It is abnormal to... Respond this way. It is non-normative. Joy is a matter of attention, not situation. What do you, what do you mean by that? Look at what David says at the beginning of verse five. Let's ask ourselves the questions. Where is my faith? Where is my confidence? David says, but I have trusted in your loving kindness so why are we going to spend the last 15 or 20 minutes on two verses? Here's why. I have trusted in your loving kindness. Where is David's faith? Where is David's confidence? Where is David's hope? Where is David's assurance? It is not in the situation that he finds himself in. It is not in the circumstance that he finds himself in. The ever-changing, ever-fleeting reality of our day-to-day lives. If you're finding your hope, your confidence, your blessedness, your assurance, and the daily shifting sands of life, you will always be a train wreck. Because you could, like the folks from the Old Testament, go to sleep one night and be Babylonians and wake up the next day and be something else. You could go to sleep one night and be free and wake up the next day and be slaves. You could go to sleep one night and be wealthy because the market's high and wake up the next day and they broke out into a war overnight while you were asleep. And the whole thing's tanked and you have no more money. Circumstances of life shift violently and aggressively day by day. And if you're finding your hope and your confidence in your situation, you will never have hope or confidence. It will always flee away from you. So where does David find it? Where does he say that he looks for it? I have trusted in what? In my circumstances? In my situation? And how life is going? No. I have trusted in your God's loving kindness. That word for loving kindness is loyal love, salvific love. My trust, hear hear what David's saying here. My trust, my confidence, my joy. Is in God's saving love. And friends let me make it really clear this morning. That does not circumstantially change. If you fall asleep one night. Incredibly wealthy in the market. And wake up the next day with the whole thing tanked out. God still loves you the same. Even though you went from being rich to being poor. If you wake up, if you go to sleep one night and you're free and you wake up the next day and you're a slave, God still loves you the same if you are in Christ Jesus. If you made a horrible choice and a horrible decision, if you made the worst possible call and abandoned all wisdom and made a train wreck of your life and you were broken, and overwhelmed at how foolish you could have been. And you cry out to God in sorrow. And you weep through the night. and You shed your tears upon your bed like David talks about in other psalms. And you wake up the next day. And the sun is shining on your face. And all the train wreck of your life is still there from your lack of wisdom the day before. But you are in Christ. God's love for you has not Changed. This is why David finds joy not in his situation. His joy is a matter of attention. I will attend to the fact that my trust is in God's loyal, salvific, atoning love. And it never changes. And it never shifts. And it never gets smaller. Because of my mistakes. And it never gets greater. Because of my good actions. The love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Flows from the glory. And the majesty of God's own heart itself. And there is not one thing that I can do. Or not do. That will cause God to love me more or less. In Christ Jesus. His love is abundant in His Son. He loves His Son. And the love with which He loves His Son. He loves me because I am in His Son. And David says that is what I will trust in. I will trust in that love. And it radically changes the way that we view the circumstances of the world. David magnifies it. My heart shall rejoice, have joy in your salvation. I know not everybody's always on the same theological page. I know there may be some who are going to disagree with what I'm about to say here. But this is profoundly encouraging. My heart. Which is desperately sick. And wicked above all else, the scripture says very plainly it is. This heart of stone has to be replaced with a heart of flesh by God's grace. That it might be molded and shaped into an instrument that loves him my heart that was crushed and sad and broken and wondering where God is and if He's going to forget me forever and if He's going to hide His face from me, my heart will rejoice, will find joy in your salvation. Hear me this morning. The reason so many people who claim Christianity are Easily strayed from the joy of God's salvation is that they don't view it as God's salvation. They view it as my salvation. Some decision that I made. Some choice that I had. Some thing that I do. Some exercise that I put effort into. It's my salvation. And friend, if it's your salvation, not God's salvation, it's mine, it belongs to me. I possess it. I'm the one that's the the, the the one who's the author and the constructor and the developer and the designer of it. Then it falls into the category of an ever shifting circumstance that will fail you. David didn't say, I'm rejoicing in my salvation. No, I'm rejoicing in your salvation, God. Why? Because if it comes from Him, and if it's of Him, and if it was started by Him, and if it's developed by Him, and if it's grown by Him, and if it's encouraged by Him, if it's cultivated by Him, and protected by Him, it will never fail. It is your loving kindness, your sacrificial love, your atoning mercy, And you gave it to me as a gift. It's your salvation. It's rooted and founded in who you are, not in what I do. And so when you're staring down all of the worst things that you could stare down personal sickness, sickness of a family member, loss of a child, loss of a job, loss of a friend. The death of people, the, the threat of war, loss of financial security. And you could run through the gamut of lists of things that overwhelm and crush people on a regular basis in our world. Your attention should be turned away. From how those things shift and wobble and move. And should instead be turned to the firm Foundation. Of God's loving kindness and His salvation that He has supplied freely. I will attend to the truth of who God is and how He has saved me and there I will find my joy. It is not circumstantial. It is not situational. It will not change. It will not shift. God will not be moved and I will have a firm footing and I will have a shield about me. I will have a strong tower and I will have a banner of victory over me because God has done this thing and no one or nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Joy is a matter of attention. Not situation. And notice what David responds at the end of this, at the end of this. Notice how he responds. I will sing... To the Lord. Now, I don't want to get way off track from the point of the sermon, but I want to point something out about this phrase, and it's all throughout the Psalms. Shockingly, in our world, Kyle, you might want to listen to this because it's going to be news to you. Shockingly, in our world, people take issue with the way music is sung in churches. it's shocking, I know. I don't like this song. I don't like that song. I don't like how they did this. I don't like why they changed that. Could we have more instruments? Because we have fewer instruments. Could we have the. Could... Everybody has a preference. What's always funny to me, and I'm sure Kyle has experienced this as well. When people come to me to have conversations about musical preferences, do you know what they never do? They, ask, they never ask me what my musical preference is. They just assume that since we're singing the songs the way we're singing them, that I'm totally okay with exactly every way that we sang every song. Y'all don't want to sing songs in church the way I want to sing songs in church. You don't want to do that. You really don't. See, now you're confused. You don't know how I'd want to sing them and you want to ask but you're mad you didn't ask for all these 10 years and now you're like afraid to ask and so you're just kind of stuck. It's too bad for you. But people get frustrated about you know how and what we sing. Listen, the how and the what we sing guess what? That's situational. You find your joy in the shift of attention. Why does David? I will sing to you, O oh Lord, because of the right instruments. I will sing to you, Lord, because of the right songs. I will sing to you, the world, Lord, because of the right construct. No, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because He has dealt bountifully with me. He has caused me to have a life to where when I look around at the wretchedness of my situations and the brokenness of my life and the struggles that I have with sin and the sorrow that besets me on every side, I'm able to look past all of those things and I'm able to give attention to the fact that He has loved me with loving kindness. He has placed the loyal love of salvation on me that I did not deserve and He has given to me His salvation in His Son Christ making the great exchange of Jesus for me, the righteous one for the wicked, the living one for for the dead one. And now I have the life of Christ for all eternity regardless of how well I perform in this thing called Christianity. Because it is God's salvation and He has secured me in it. And even when I'm faithless He's faithful. I will sing praises to Him for this. That's what David said he'll do. Friend is that? Why you sing to the Lord. There are times when I come into this corporate worship service. And life. Has just been hitting me like a sledgehammer. And because I have the closest, most intimate relationship with my wife. There have been times over these 20-some-odd years now that I've done this where I will look at her on the way to a worship service and I'll say, I'm just not feeling it. I know, it's shocking. Some of you are really bothered that a preacher would say that out loud in a sermon from the pulpit. What does it do to me to lie to you? God knows the truth. There have been times walking in the door of the church building, getting ready to preach a sermon. I'm just not feeling this. Where are you God? How long, oh Lord, will you hide your face from me, friends? It happens to preacher guys too. And when you're going through something that makes you have this sort of circumstantial relational distance in your heart and in your life and in your mind, you have to shift your attention rather quickly. And there have been plenty of times where I didn't want to sing the songs. And there have been plenty of times where I didn't want to preach the sermons. And there have been plenty of times where I did not want my life to be a life reflecting praise. Because I felt the way that David felt in the first four verses of this psalm. And then I remember. Or God reminds me. Or both. That I've trusted in his loving kindness. I shouldn't even be allowed here in the first place. I shouldn't be allowed to stand up and open this book and share any of its words with any of you. I should not be able to stand in the presence of the most high God and call him my father. I should not be able to call Jesus my brother. I should not be seated in the heavenly places with Christ. I should not be robed in his righteousness. I should not be crowned with his glory. I should not be living his life. I should not be declared not guilty before the most high God. My life should not be redeemed. My life should not be producing holiness. My life should not be a proper reflection of the image of God in any way. And yet because of his grace and for his glory he has brought me into his kingdom he has seated me at his table and he has called for me to feast upon the richness of his blessings not because I deserved it but because he made me worthy through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and in a moment like that when I am reminded of the goodness of God to me I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me I, I like this This dealt bountifully phrase. It's actually agricultural phrase. It's really weird when translated literally. He has ripened me over myself. Doesn't really flow off the tongue quite as well as dealt bountifully does. In other words. He is bringing about in me much fruit. It is harvest language. And why do I ever bear fruit in my life? Because of the abiding presence of the Spirit of God in salvation. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And how does this happen in my life? By God working His grace in me. This is what he's done. And so, friends, this morning. Do you feel forgotten by God? Do you feel that he is distant from you? Are you struggling through some great pain and sorrow, some trying, tragic circumstance that is overwhelming you? Are you calling out to God in the dark recesses of your soul and saying, God, unless you enlighten my eyes, I'll sleep the sleep of death. Whatever I'm going through, it's killing me. It's Killing me. Jesus is the one who remembers you. He's not forgotten you. And if you find yourself this morning by grace, through faith and repentance, to be centrally located in Christ Jesus, he has not abandoned you. He's not turned his face from you. It's a humorous story, kind of a weird way to end a sermon, but I heard it a long time ago. There was a young couple from deep in the country. And the old boy asked the girl to marry him. And she said yes. And they didn't have a lot. He worked on a farm. And his tool of the trade was his pickup truck. And so they'd go riding around together whenever they weren't. He wasn't working. and It's one of those old straight bed pickup trucks where you can move across. And she would come and she'd sit real close to him. And as the years went by. She got a little further away from him on the front bed of that pickup truck, the front cab of that pickup truck. Years and years and years went by. One day, I have grandkids, they've been together a long time. She looked down the front of that truck at him and she said, you know, I remember when we used to sit real close in this truck You'd hold my hand. I miss those days. Without even hesitating a bit, he said, well, I've always been in this exact same seat. You're the one who slid down to the other side of the truck. Friend, if you feel that God has turned his face away from you, I guarantee you he's still sitting in the same seat that he's always been in. He's not moved. Your attention is. Has been turned away from the glory of God. We as the bride have slid away from. Where our husband is seated. We have turned our attention away from him. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never abandons us. He never turns his face from us. He is always ever present for us as he promised he would be. When David felt here in the psalm that God had turned his face away from him, truly what it is is David had turned his face away from God to look at the sorrow of his circumstances. Just as Peter looked at the storm and sank and called out to Jesus to save him. And where was Jesus? Where he had been the whole time. And he saved him immediately. Friends, Jesus is the one who remembers us. Because Jesus is the one who supplies for us God's loving kindness. Jesus is the one who is our salvation in the Lord. Jesus is the one who has dealt bountifully with us. Jesus is the one for whom we shall sing praises to God. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever. Your circumstances will violently change day by day in your life. Jesus will remain the same forever. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us. Thank you that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is your mercy, He is your love. He is worthy of our attention. Father, forgive us when we make an idol of our circumstances. Father, give us the grace to turn our attention to your glory. To the love that you have for us in Christ. To the abiding, fruit-bearing presence of the Spirit. Triune God manifesting your glory in us. Father, by your grace, help us to experience the joy of your salvation, even in the midst of sorrow. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together.